We welcome you to High Point Church, and we are continuing today in our study in the book of Isaiah. This week, our study will take us back to chapter 40. In the, the final 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, starting with chapter 40, it seems that Isaiah is looking ahead to a time when the, the people of Judah, the Jewish people, would be exiled in Babylon. The fact of the matter is the text is written as though the Jews were already being held there. And actually, historically, the captivity didn't didn't begin until 586 B.C., and that was after Isaiah had already died. So most of what is written is written prophetically, Isaiah looking toward the fact that the people would be taken captive and taken into exile. And then he was writing... as to already comfort them and give them peace in the fact that God would still be there and bring them out of that exile when it hadn't even happened yet. And that actually has implications to us today, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. The exile that the people would experience was divine punishment for the people's disobedience to God. God had spoken to his people time and time again and they would serve God for a while and then they would turn away and often when they turned away they turned not just away from God but they turned to other gods and to idolatry and after a while God delivered his punishment on them and that was their exile by the Babylonians but Isaiah's pronouncement in the first part of chapter 40 It signals that there would be a punishment, but it wasn't all about punishment, that there would be something that followed that, and that's what we're going to look at today. The portion that we're reading today, in in verse 1 especially, it not only speaks, as we said, of the people being taken into exile, which had not happened, but it was almost as if they were ready to come out, which... Neither one of those had happened. So as we said before, it's it's written prophetically. If you were reading this as Isaiah wrote it, you'd probably look at it and go, what is he talking about, us coming out of exile? We haven't even gone in yet. And it, it's something that we look at today as we read the the Bible. Often we look at things and, and we look say, well, that doesn't really pertain to me. And the fact of it is that it might not pertain to you right now, But somewhere down the road, you look at it and say, now I understand what that writing was. There is so much of the Bible that is written, and because it is the inspired Word of God, it's written knowing that the direction that our life will go. And it's amazing when you look at it that way, that the Bible written thousands of years ago is not only applicable to yesterday, but it it follows us today and even has answers for tomorrow. And that's what makes the Word of God not just another book. When the people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon, not everybody was taken. The very poorest of the poor people were left. Um, The old Judean upper class, they didn't escape the exile. They were loaded up and marched back to Babylon. And the upper class people of Judah 
were the ones that became common slaves in Babylon. Most likely when they started out, they um, were doing things like digging ditches uh, for the... The Babylonians had a, a, just all kinds of infrastructure at the time that was unbelievable. And they had water irrig- irrigation canals and stuff. And so probably the exiles were there, the ones that were digging this, these canals. They lived in enclaves kind of off to themselves. And so here were the Babylonians and here were the slaves. As years passed, the the Judean people, the Jews, they kind of assimilated into the culture of the Babylonians. Many of them turned away from God and accepted the false gods of the Babylonians. But they assimilated into the culture, and as that happened, a lot of the upper-class Jewish people that were taken into captivity were given places of power. Look at Daniel, a great example. Daniel was not just a slave. Daniel was a very important person to King Nebuchadnezzar. So we see that eventually over a period of time, the people weren't just common slaves. They actually were a part of the culture. The people that were left behind, you have to look at what they were left with too. They were left with nothing. The walls of the city were torn down. The infrastructure was completely destroyed. The people that were the, the ruling class were gone. The, the people that owned the, the businesses and the, the factories and all of the, the things that made the economy work were gone. The people that were left were just the workers, but now they had no place to work. So it wasn't good for those that were taken into exile. And it wasn't very good for the ones that were left behind either. It was worse, actually. So both the Jews in Babylon and the Jews that were left behind, they needed this consolation. And Isaiah, as he wrote prophetically, he spoke to both groups of people. Yes, this is going to happen. God is going to send his judgment. But that is not the end of it. And in Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 1, where we're going to start our reading, this is what Isaiah wrote. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received double from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now keep in mind, they hadn't even been punished yet. Comfort in the first verse is repeated. And I believe it's repeated for emphasis because that's what Isaiah was trying to do. He was trying to say that there is peace and there is comfort in whatever situation that you might find yourself in. And he was also saying, you will find yourself in a situation. It's going to happen. But that is not the end of it. God commanded Isaiah to speak tenderly to the people. Now keep in mind, this is the same God that was pouring out punishment on the people. And we have to realize that that's the way that God is. God is a just God. God sends out His His punishment or His judgment 
upon people because He is a just God. And He can't overlook those things because He is a just God. But He doesn't just pour out punishment without anything else. For anybody that has seen punishment, He also offered some type of redemption for them. Not just for the people of that day, but for us today. We know that through salvation that we have redemption of our sins. We also know that if we don't accept that, that there will be judgment placed on all that do not accept it. So if we look at the writings of Isaiah, we see that it it not only covered the time that he was talking about and to his contemporaries of that day, but also to a short distance in the future and way down the line to people like us. God said that he was forgiving the people of their sins. He says that they would be judged. He says they would be judged twice, actually. And this doesn't mean that they're going to be punished two times. I believe that saying that they would be judged twice is saying, or double for their sins, is that they would receive full judgment. They were taken from the place where they lived, and they were placed into captivity, and every bit of judgment that was due them was poured out on them. But it didn't end there. Isaiah, let's go back to our scripture, verse 3, 3 through 5. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and every hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah announced that there would be a voice, a voice telling the people to prepare for God's judgment. Now, again, we have to realize that that Isaiah was speaking to different places in time. He was speaking to the people of that day, but he's also speaking to us. And we'll look and see that what he spoke of came to pass for those people of that day, but it also, later on, it happened also. Let's go to um, Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. This is where it applies to us. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, who we know as John the Baptist, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of forgiveness, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now look at this. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Exactly. That was hundreds of years after the initial time that it came to pass. But this was for a different age. This right here speaks to us. John the Baptist traveled through the rural areas around the Jordan River, and he preached the baptism of repentance. There is someone coming after me who I'm not even worthy to to loose his shoes from his feet. But right now what you need to do is you need to repent. John was like 
what they had in that day, there was people that were called a herald. And a herald was someone that went before a king or a, a great ruler or a conqueror. And what he did is he told the people that were going to be along the route. For example, if I was the herald and, and I knew that the, the king or the conquering person of the city of Brandon was coming down Lithia Pinecrest, I would go to all the houses along Lithia Pinecrest Road and I would tell them, go out there and smooth all the potholes over. Fill in the potholes. Also, if there's any places where the road just turns and does all this, I want you to just cut a path right through there and make it straight. And it was in preparation for the person that was to follow. And that was a custom of the day. And it's tied in to what we see in prophecy. That's what John did. He said, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the path for Him. That's what he was doing. He was just preparing the road for Jesus to come and to offer salvation and the plan of salvation that we receive now. So basically what John was doing, he was preparing the people for the day that Jesus would come. And if you remember, Jesus' ministry started shortly after John went out and did that. I believe there was, what, six months difference in John and Jesus' age? So the passage that we're reading in Isaiah has an immediate and a distant application. And it was just as true in either application. In the immediate application for where he was writing it, Isaiah was saying that there will be a path from Judah, Jerusalem, for the Israelites, and it would be a path that would go to Babylon. And they would find themselves in captivity. In the long term, let's go to um, Matthew 3, chapter 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the ways for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Again, the application of Isaiah's writing at this point becomes personal to you and I. Just as the Jews had sinned in their day and were going to receive punishment and judgment, all of us have sinned. The Bible says that we were, we were born in sin. If you never went out and did anything and you were just born, then you were still a sinner. So knowing that, there was something needed. The same comfort that Isaiah offered to the people of his day is offered for us today. There is comfort. Yes, there is judgment, but there is more than just judgment. We can't look at God as being that, that great horrible being that just sits on his throne waiting for us to do something wrong so he can smack us in the head. That's not what he is. He is a loving God. He is a just God, but He is a loving God. Isaiah prophesied it. Matthew and Luke spoke about it. John the Baptist preached it. And Jesus fulfilled it. And in Him, 
we too have hope. Isaiah said that as as God freed his people from exile and triumphantly would eventually lead them back to Jerusalem, at that point, all nations would realize that God alone was responsible for all of the events. See, it wasn't just God punishing people and abandoning them. It wasn't about that at all. It was that God was a just God, and He told them, this is what you have to do. If you don't, you will receive judgment. They didn't do it, and He judged them, and they were taken into captivity. But at some point in that time, He offered a redemption to them for what they had done. And if you read on through the Old Testament and later times, they actually were not... They didn't escape like out of prison and go back to Jerusalem. At some point in time, the rulers of that day actually told them that they could go back. They sent them back, but not on their own. They actually sent them back with a lot of the gold and the things that came out of the temple. So even though God had judged them, He in turn blessed them and restored them to where they were. And you and I are in that same position. When we were born in sin, at that point we are judged for eternal death. But he has, re- he has made a way of salvation and provided redemption so that we don't have to suffer that eternal death, that we can have eternal life instead. And that's by our choice. Let's read Isaiah 40 and verse 6. That's exactly right. It, you know, Isaiah is written, in, if you just read it as historical... It's a wonderful book. But if you read it as a historical book and a book of prophecy and see how that it applied so much with what really happened in hundreds of difference of years of separation in time, it shows you that the Word of God really is more than just another book. Exactly. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what should I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Let's read 6 through 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Some people think that the the withering of the grass and the fading of the flowers that Isaiah spoke of in, cha- in chapter 40, verse 7, was a, an indirect reference to what was called the Sirocco or the Khamsin, K-H-A-M-S-I-N. And this wind came from the deserts east and south of Jerusalem. And with these winds, there, were a, there was a scorching heat 
and the whirling dust. In fact, let's look at Jeremiah 4 and 11. There's several scriptures in the Old Testament that refer to this. At that same time, at that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. It is a fitting picture of God's judgment when you compare it to what was a reality. The people understood what that wind was. They understood that when that wind came across, there were all types of consequences. So Isaiah is writing in in a poetic form, and he's comparing what happens to something that they could relate to. Going on, in ancient times, this was mentioned as it was called the east wind. Uh, it was known to scorch grain. Genesis 41 and 6. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. This was actually a prophecy of Joseph. In Ezekiel 17 and 10, another reference to the same east wind. Even if it is transplanted, will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the pot where it grew? It also in Jonah 4 and 8, it was a strong enough and, and the heat was extreme enough that it would actually cause men to faint. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. As it blew in from the wilderness, Hosea 13 and 15, it was so powerful that it could actually dry up springs of water. Even though he thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert, his spring will fail, and his well dry up. So the people of that day understood exactly what Isaiah was talking about when he said that the grass would wither, the flowers would fall because they were familiar with that happening. They knew that those things weren't things that lasted forever. They knew that it was very possible that you could have a crop that was doing great and all of a sudden these east winds come and completely destroy the crop from the heat and the wind. But he goes on to say, but the word of our Lord stands forever. That's what we really need to look at. It's not just about judgment. And there are people today that they don't find anything in Christianity other than judgment. And we've taught recently about that, that there has to be judgment. That God has to judge because He is a just God. And if He overlooked it, if He overlooked sin, then He wouldn't be just. So there has to be judgment. But it's not all about judgment. If we go too far this way saying it's all about judgment, or we go this far to the other side and say it's all about love, then we've done people a disservice. What we have to realize is that God is in between and that he exercises judgment and he exercises love. And he stands for both. In fact, let's read verses 9 through 13 or 9 through 11. I'm sorry. 
You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now there's the judgment part. Now look at the next verse. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Again, we see Isaiah paints this picture of a God that is a God of judgment and he's a God of love. Isaiah, in these passages, he he lets us know and he let the people of that day know that the the salvation of the Jews only came because of God. Why is that? Because their exile was only because of God. If God didn't want them taken captive, they would have never been taken captive. Look how many times they defeated their enemies when they were outnumbered. They, were, they had armies that were greater than them that came against them, and yet God fought their fight for them, and they weren't taken captive. So we look in this passage of Scripture and at this point in time and we see that the only reason that they were taken captive is because God allowed it to happen. But the same God that allowed that was the only one that could bring them back to where they were. Isaiah compared the the weakness of people and nations to grass, and to flowers. Sometimes human beings, they might look to be something great on the outside. They might look powerful. They might be like a flower and be beautiful on the outside. But still, that person in their own self can only accomplish so much. There has never been a person that was so great There has never been a person that was so successful. There has never been a person that was so popular that eventually they didn't die except for two people mentioned in the Bible. Other than that, everybody, Solomon, with all his wisdom, with all his riches, with all his power, eventually died. And so when we look at the comparison that Isaiah made, that everything that we see is like the grass and the flowers. When I walked in the building this morning, I looked at the beautiful flowers that are right along the the front porch there. And I thought, those are so pretty. The colors are beautiful. And the next thing that came to my mind is that it's going to get down to about 40 degrees tonight. I wonder if in the next couple days they're going to look like they look right now. And that's exactly what Isaiah was saying. It might look great, but it's only temporary. But there is something that stands, and that was the Word of God. Babylon, as powerful as it was, this was a city that had 
They had infrastructure like you cannot imagine. They had a postal system. They had running water. And this is in ancient times. These people were so ahead of everybody else. And yet eventually, Babylon fell. But since God's word is eternal, and what he says will happen, the people knew that the same writing that Isaiah had written in the first 20-some chapters of his book, proclaiming that they would be taken captive, if that was true, then the next part that he wrote, that they would be comforted and brought out, it was just as true. said that Zion or Jerusalem would be the first to hear the, the wonderful news that the Lord would deliver his people. That was the people that were left behind. And it was interesting that he asked those people that were left behind in all the squalor and ruin of the city that they were the ones to go to the mountaintop and proclaim what God was doing and go to the different towns in Judah and say, here is your God. Look what your God is doing. And I'm sure for them it was difficult in the middle of a city that was totally destroyed to look around and say, everything's okay. Everything's just fine. Remember the walls of the city were not even started on. When Jeremiah went back to the, 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 the city and he walked around and he saw the walls torn down and he saw all the things that it had been hundreds of years and nothing had been done. It was still a pile of rubble. And God is speaking to the people that were living in that rubble saying, here's your God. Go to the mountaintops and proclaim it. Sometimes that's difficult. But you have to hold on to something that the Word of God is true. All these other things come and go. But Isaiah wrote that the Word of our God stands forever. This passage of, of proclaiming the good tidings also applies to, to Jesus Christ. During his time on earth, he personally came to Jerusalem to pronounce that his people would be set free. In fact, let's look at Matthew 21, verses 4 through 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The prophet being Isaiah, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The whole magnificent entry of Jesus into Jerusalem didn't just happen. It was spoken of hundreds of years before it ever happened. Not just that he would come to Jerusalem but his mode of transportation when he came into the city. Doesn't that just give you chills to know that the Word of God is that accurate? How amazing is that? Not just, I mean, it wasn't just down there, well, he's going to be riding on a donkey. 
No, specifically, he would be riding on a donkey, on the colt or the foal of a donkey. And you know what? When it happened, Jesus' followers actually went out and they found that foal. And that's what Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. How amazing is that? And we often, we take this book and if we're not careful, it just becomes another book. I've seen people that have had their Bible and wherever they might have it in their home or in their office and you look and it's just in a stack of other books or it's covered with dust. You could tell it hadn't been picked up recently. Or there's a plant sitting on top of it. I saw somebody the other day that had their Bible laying there. They actually had their ashtray on the Bible. When we do that, we are taking the book that contains all the things we've talked about today. All the magnificent prophecy and all the magnificent promises of the Word of God, and we're putting it in a place where it's just a book. And that doesn't mean that we, we make sure we don't damage it so we put it on a shelf where it never gets picked up. No, if we really believe that this book is as awesome a book as we say it is, wouldn't we want to spend a lot of time reading it? I find that the more I read this Bible, the more I want to read it. Because the more I read it, the more I find in it that it is written for me. The people that wrote it, they didn't know it when they wrote it. But as God inspired them, this is written for me. This is my personal Word of God written for me. This is my personal instruction book, straight from God, written for me. And I'm not saying that you have to become one of those people that everywhere you go, you've got a Bible about three times this big under your arm so that everybody knows you're carrying your Bible. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when we realize what this is, we look at it and we treat it differently. <laughs> and you know what? You might read it the same passage of Scripture 20 times. And on the 20th time, something goes off in your head and you go, I know what that means. I've read that so many times that I had no clue what that was about. Many, many times I've read stuff in the Bible. Now I've even I've said it here in Sunday school class. I don't remember reading that before. And I know I did. But you know what? Here's the difference. At the time I read it, maybe it didn't have a lot of importance to me. But the time when I needed it, all of a sudden it did. 
to make sure that the people understood, the people that Isaiah was writing to, he described God as both powerful and gentle. In chapter 40 and verse 10, he said that God would not appear in a timid fashion, but he would come with power and his arm rules for him. And I believe what he was saying was not so much that that was judgment. Yes, it was. But he was saying that his power was so great, there is no king taken my people captive that can withstand when I'm ready for them to be put back in place. There's nobody that can stop me from that happening. What God has purposed in your life, if we trust in Him and we continue to trust in Him and we continue to follow in the path that He has led us, there is no one that can stop the will of God in your life. Think about that for a minute. I am not saying that you say, well, my goal in life is God wants me to be a multi-gazillionaire. And so I'm just going to sit back and it's going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what God's will really is for your life, it will take place. People that say, well, I believe in eternal security or or the fact that once you're saved, you're always saved. In the way they believe it, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do believe that. I I do believe that once you are saved... You will stay that way if that's your choice. There is no one that can unsave you. No one. The Bible speaks that there is no one that can snatch us from the hand of God. And what that means is that once we are saved, once we have received salvation, there is no one on earth that is powerful enough to take that away from us. And that's what Isaiah was writing about here, that once his people were taken into captivity, when it was time for God to redeem them and restore them back to where they were supposed to be, there is no one that can stop that from happening. How powerful is that? People, you're going to go through some tough times. It's going to happen. It's just judgment. But let me assure you of something. There's a promise of restoration. And at that point, nothing can stop God from restoring you. Not even a powerful, the most powerful kingdom in the world could not stop God's plan for His people. And after that, Isaiah portrays God as a a shepherd. And here's the same God that that poured out judgment, but now all of a sudden, it's a different aspect of the same God. That He is a shepherd. He gathers His lambs. Who are His lambs? That's us. That's His people. 
He gathers them close to his heart and he gently leads them. And see, here's the great part about that. The Word of God doesn't change. If it was true for them back then, it's still true for us today. God's promises are true. We know that for certain. How do we know that? First of all, one thing that we have to believe is that the Word of God is just that. It's the Word of God. If you don't believe that, then anything else I ever say up here, or that Pastor Machine or Bishop Goldsberry ever says from that pulpit, if you don't believe this is the Word of God, whatever any of us say is completely irrelevant. We might as well get up here and read Dr. Seuss. Second Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The King James Version says all Scripture is written, is given by inspiration of God. Yeah, it's written by men. But they didn't just sit down and say, hey, I think I'll write a book today. They were written, they wrote what they wrote under the guidance of the Spirit of God. These words, when we read the letters of Paul to the different churches, to the different people he wrote to encourage it, it wasn't something out of Paul's mind. It was something out of Paul's heart. And it was something that he wrote as he was led by the Spirit of God. That's why the words are eternal. That is the only reason. Other books have been written and they've been great books and they go to the bestseller list and on the New York Times, number one, for 77 weeks. And a few years later, nobody's ever heard of that book. In Isaiah 40 and 8, when, when Isaiah wrote that the Word of our God stands forever, he knew that when everything else was gone, the Word of God is still true. Matthew 24 and 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's word is eternal. Psalm 119 and 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. While nations and people will perish, God's word endures. With all the events that Isaiah saw coming to the Israelites. How could he still offer them hope? But we're going to be taken captive and our city's going to be destroyed. How can you stand here and offer us hope? Because he knew of the faithfulness of God. He knew that God didn't change. He knew that God's word would endure forever. He knew the promises that God had given all the way back to Abraham. That you would be my people. And because of that, he knew that whatever happened, God was still in control. 
And I believe because of those things, it gave him the ability to write in verse 1 of chapter 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Where is your hope? Today, as you sit in this place, where is your hope? Is it in the dollar? I hope not. How about gold? Yeah, let's put it in gold. Let's put our hope in gold. It's at an all-time high. In 1979, gold sold for around $200 an ounce. In 1980, just a year later, it rose to almost $800 an ounce. Well, then we should have put everything in gold. And that should be our hope. In 2000, it was down to under $300 an ounce. At the close of business Friday, gold was back at almost $800 an ounce. So then we should put our trust in gold. No, I would say the track record of gold is not real good. It is not secure. Yeah, it goes up, but it comes down. And one thing for sure, it's way up here now. It won't always be there. That's exactly right. So do we put our hope in, we can't put it in the dollar, we can't put it in gold. How about real estate? And everybody moaned in unison. In the last five years, your home has increased in value more than any time in history. And in the last 12 months, it's probably gone down at a record rate for any previous 12 months in history. So let's go put our hope in real estate. No. You know, a year or so ago, there were people that said, the only thing that is secure is investing in real estate. And many of those people today are sitting with several houses on the market that they can't sell. And reality has set in that it wasn't for sure. Look what the stock market did. Yeah, it's great now. But all it took was a series of events in about an hour. On September 11th, 2001, in about an hour, some planes crashed into some buildings. It killed a lot of people. And within a few days, the stock market fell with a spiral. There was a lot of people had their hope in that. Where is your hope? Isaiah used terms that the people of that day would understand. He talked about flowers and grass. And how they would all wither from that east wind that they all knew about that was so powerful and hot and just would destroy things. And if we look around at the shape that our world is in right now, we could become discouraged too. The question is, what is our trust in?
Isaiah spoke of difficult times, but he didn't leave it at that. And I will tell you today that whatever battle you're fighting, whatever problem you are facing, God is faithful. His judgment is fair, and it is sure, but so are His rewards. Most importantly, we have to remember that He loves us. The God that is in control of the entire world, that controlled all of the events that have ever happened from the beginning of time, including creation of everything we see and know, loves us. In our text today, in in chapter 40 and verse 10, for those that had not been faithful, God pronounced judgment. And then in verse 11, for those that had been faithful, there was redemption. And I believe that the promise that Isaiah wrote for the people back then is just as true for us today, just as if he wrote it for us today. Because God has not changed. He is the same yesterday in Isaiah's time. He is the same today in our time. And He will be the same if this world stands for another hundred years. God will not change. Malachi 3 and 6. The very first part of it says, I the Lord do not change. Now I don't know how much more clear you could make that. I, the Lord, do not change. If you can't remember any other scripture that we've read today, if you can't remember any other thing that we've said today, remember the first part of Malachi 3 and 6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1 and 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And I will close with this. I'm going to give you three logical reasons that neither God nor His Word can change. For some people, it has to be spelled out logically. So let's look at it logically. Number one, If anything changes, it must do so in some chronological order. If anything changes, it has to do its changing in some type of chronological order. There must be a point in time before the change and a point in time after the change. That's how we know it changed. It was this way, and now it's this way. Therefore, for change to take place... It must happen within the constraints of time. Everybody agree so far? But see, God is eternal. And He exists outside of the constraints of time. Which means logically, God can't change. Psalm 33 and 11 says, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. In 2 Timothy 1 and 9 says, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So if change has to take place within the constraints of time, God cannot change because He doesn't exist in time. He was before time began. 
So for all the logical people, we all agree. Point number two. If anything changes, it must change for better or for worse. Because a change that makes no difference is not a change. Exactly. For change to take place, either something that is needed is added, which is a change for the better, or something that is needed is lost, which is a change for the worse. But since God is perfect, He doesn't need anything. Therefore, He can't change for the better. And if God were to lose something, He wouldn't be perfect. Therefore, He can't change for the worse. So He can't change for two logical reasons. And for the last third logical reason, when someone changes their mind, it's often because new information has come to light that was not previously known, or the circumstances have changed that require a different kind of attitude or action. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So what can he learn so that he could change his mind? Numbers 23 and 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? He can't change because he's perfect. How do you change perfection? You can't add to it, and you can't take away from it, because if you take away from it, it's not perfect anymore. The verses that we've read today, and the things we've talked about today, show us that God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And He is unchanging. His Word will endure forever. So don't look around and be discouraged. Instead, look around and know that God's plan is perfect. His love for you is real. He does not change. And the words that Isaiah wrote thousands of years ago, think of that. Thousands of years ago, he wrote the words, and they're just as true today as they were when he wrote them. And that is for one reason and one reason only. God's word truly does stand the test of time. God bless you.